Welcome to Women in Venture Capital, a podcast by students for students. I'm Roshvina. And I'm Anvita. And we are from the Harvard Business School. My guest today is Anne Duane. Anne is a co-founder and partner at Village Global, an early stage venture fund based in the Bay Area. Anne has years of experience as a founder, operator, and CEO, managing PLs, scaling operations, and building high-performing teams. Prior to Village Global, she was a partner at GSB Acceleration Fund, Chief Business Officer at Chegg, CEO at Zinge, General Manager of Affinity Networks at Monster, and Military Advantage. It's a real pleasure to have you on the show today, Anne. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you so much. Sure thing. So jumping right in, before becoming an investor, like I said in your intro, um, you founded Military.com, which you talk about in an article on Lean In. More specifically, you talked about having to fix and grow the business during a recessionary period and what it took. And actually at HBS, I'm sure you remember this, but a lot of the cases talk about you know startups and especially startups in moments of troubling market environments and how to um, pass that. Um, so I would love to know about your experience with that and whether that experience has impacted how you make decisions as an investor. Great question. And yes, it does. And the lean-in story is, is good, but there's actually an HBS case that shows the less the real challenging parts of military.com. I think that they say pressure creates diamonds. And I'm old enough to have lived through 2001, which was a dot-com meltdown, and 2008, the financial crisis. And then we're all navigating through this craziness of um, the last couple of years. And hopefully, they are opportunity. But what I learned from almost going out of business with Military.com in 2001, when we literally had big clients that owed us money that, um, that said, you know, we're not going to pay you because we think you and all these other dot-coms are going to go out of business. It was dire. And we had to go from 80 people to about 15 people. And it was a time when, when you did layoffs, unlike now, it was hard for people to find another job. It was extremely jarring. And what I learned is two things. You got to play the game by the rules that are in action at any one time. So it was growth, growth, growth until you, it wasn't. And you couldn't raise more money. And if you were in a position where you were burning cash and you didn't control your own destiny, you had to make changes. So I learned that the best thing to do in a startup is to make short feedback loops so you can accelerate your learning and to really have your finger on the dial of where you're spending both time and money to figure out where you're moving the needle on the things that matter. Because especially in an environment, maybe like today, where it's relatively easy to raise money, it's easy to be undisciplined. And I like this phrase that says, if you don't have a plan, everything looks like progress. So um, figure out what you're trying to accomplish in the startup. And the day you raise money, I like to think about with founders, what do we think needs to be true for you to get to, to to prove things and thus be able to increase the value of the startup. So you can raise money. You don't have to raise money, but you could. And if you have your fingers on the dials of those things and you're able to say, wow, this is beating my plan or, and let's double down, or this is way off plan. Let's stop doing this or let's rethink it is really important because then if the rules of the macro environment change, like, 
you can't raise money or customers stop paying you or something like that, then you can adapt. And I strongly believe that the only advantage that startups have over big companies, they don't really have smarter people. They don't really have brands or trust with a lot of consumers. The only thing that startups have is they can be tighter, more focused learning machines. That is actually well put, Anna. Um, we've clearly noticed that you have a strong interest in education, seeing your path on a lot of things you have taken uh, as, as steps and initiatives towards it. Curious to know what initiated that interest in education and helping students navigate the path to a higher education. Um, also moving from a platform that provides academic support to a VC fund that invests in technology companies dedicated to improving learning. So a two-part question, I mean, A, what triggered that interest in edtech or education overall? And B, what triggered the interest in shifting from being an operator to a fund further dedicated to education itself? Uh, so... I stumbled into education at military.com. So the number one reason for joining the U.S. military is education benefits. And it's um, a tremendous benefit. The uh, military um, tuition assistance lets people in the service go to school during um, their military service, in addition to all the training they get. And also when they leave, they have these uh, famous GI Bill benefits to attend all kinds of institutions of learning. But what we discovered in running military.com, which was this um, uh, community personal and professional network for service members and veterans started way back in the, in, in the beginning before Facebook, if you can believe it, um, was that um, while the number one reason for joining the military was education benefits, 50% of people didn't end up using those benefits. And this was really a tragedy because um, people who enlisted in the service had actually a payroll deduction to support their education benefits. And that was use it or lose it. So um, it was really bad. And we dug into why are people not using this benefit? And it was just fraught with bureaucracy. And so we at military.com helped people connect to opportunity to use those benefits. And um, what I discovered in this process, and this was very early, is that, um, you know, we used to think people just would go to school for a certain amount of time, but the real benefit in today's world is to continue learning over time. And um, the half-life of specific knowledge has never been shorter. And really, as they say, the only change or the only constant today is change. Um, and so how do we, leveraging technology, help people um, continue learning over time? And that, to me, is an, a fascinating new opportunity um, enabled by technology. So, um, and I've just seen it over and over again. And in a sense, if some people say, what's the future of work? I think the future of work is school in the sense that in an age of automation or where once something can be identified into a process, it almost should be given to a computer or a robot because it can be uh, done more reliably, more quickly, more cheaply. But where we, instead of eliminating humans, how do we elevate humans and put humans in the roles that they should do best, which is interact with other people. 
That's a really interesting insight. And I absolutely agree. Um, so we've been, and I'm sure you know Deborah Quadzo at GSV um, and Tess and the team, and we've had a few conversations about ed tech and continuing education has become such a big part of ed tech right now as people are just working from home. They want to take on extra courses. So I do think, like you said, the future of work is going to upskill um, people on for the longer term. Um, I wanted to ask, as the co-founder of Village Global, what have you observed distinguishes startups that receive your connected capital as opposed to other VC funds? Well, I'll, I'll say what we look for a little bit. So we are investing around the world across sectors. We are not thesis-driven investors. We are founder-driven investors, which is we go where founders um, tell us. Um, because when we're investing at such early stages, we are sometimes investing in invisible markets or evolving markets or things like that with new enabling technologies and software. Um, and so what I like to say is we're looking for insight and reasons to believe that this team can go after this big um, problem. And the best analogy I can say is comedians don't see a different world than the rest of us, but they see the humor in the world. And entrepreneurs don't see a different world. They see the opportunity in the world. And that insight about the how the world might be with this particular company is something that can come from years of experience in a sector, or it can come from a person with total beginner's mind about a sector. And we are agnostic. We would um, back... Um, all kinds of founders who just have that insight about what the future could be better, faster, cheaper, more, basically solving a big, big, big problem. And then I think what's why people choose us is an extended network. And every venture firm has a network. So that's not differentiating. But we have a network that operates at three levels. So the first is our capital um, our, our limited partners are themselves successful founders, right? Jeff Bezos, Ann Wojcicki, um, Bill Gates, um, Magic Johnson, Abby Johnson, lots of, lots of people who are building and operating things. And they have interest in supporting and in backing the next wave of great innovators. The second level of the network is that most of our first checks aren't written by our partners in the, on the HQ team, but by a curated network of angel investors around the world. These are generally operator angels who we think are early, trusted, and helpful. So if you're familiar with the scout model, we really have a productized scout model. And why we think that's important is we want to be at the edges of networks, so people we think have really good deal flow and um, and judgment. And what we've observed over the past couple years is that when someone is thinking about starting a company, their first call isn't to a professional VC. It's to a founder they respect, a friend who's in the trenches of another business, and that's where we want to be. We also think those kind of folks are just super helpful in helping people navigate the world and see around corners. And it's also has another really important dynamic, which is if you don't require angel investors to have a lot of personal cash lying around, you get much more diversity in the angel investors. So it, they could be people without years of experience, people without an exit under their belt, people from non-traditional backgrounds around the world. So that's really uh, important. So that was the operator angel. So the, the third benefit or the differentiator of village is, um, that we really actively work to connect 
our founders with one another so that you have real um, peers who you can think through things with and founders a couple steps ahead in company building. My advice on advice has actually changed a lot over time. Years ago, when things weren't moving quite as quickly, it was valuable for someone to say, here's, here's what we did. You can probably do the same thing. Now, I think context is shifting so fast that the best thing I can do is often say, here's how we thought about it. Here's some questions you might want to ask yourself. But more importantly, let me put you in touch with someone else who's navigating a similar challenge maybe in a different sector even, or something like that. And why don't you compare notes? Because no one can tell you the answer, but um, you can navigate it together. And that kind of community matters. And a good example of this is we connect founders who are about to raise, say, their Series A with other founders who have recently raised the Series A. And the reality is no one but a recent founder can tell you what it's like to raise during a pandemic. No one, not me. You know, I raised a lot of money over my career. None of that is relevant right now. I never raise a dime on Zoom. <laughs> so um, that we think is is a growing trend. That is really interesting to hear. And having been an operator myself, having worked with a few founders separately as well, and almost validating a lot of that in a bunch of classes we are taking here at HBS, be it strategy, be it even you know a bunch of LCA kind of classes. I think what we are getting validated a lot more is that how mentors and this large network of almost uh, alumni or other peers that actually matter a lot and can be differentiators for you to create that uh, actual early uh, early stage push for you that you need when, when you're just building out. So really interesting to hear that the layers of help that you're able to provide founders, uh, even with having, say, L- LPs who've been founders and then, you know, across the network, different founders and other stakeholders of the ecosystem. So really interesting to hear that. Shifting gears a little bit, uh, moving the needle to understanding how you've seen gender dynamics in workplace. You've had an extensive career in venture capital and we're curious to hear that how have you seen these gender dynamic changes in workplace overall and how do you think this landscape will develop in the coming years? It's a good question and I'm more optimistic than I ever have been before, though there's still lots of work to do um, across gender um, under and, and uh, people of color and just all kinds of underrepresented groups. And I think that the biggest hope I have is that we embrace in, and the example in education might be that um, existing or legacy education systems were artifacts of um, a time when we were trying to kind of manufacture interchangeable parts that could work in a bureaucracy. There's an amazing TED talk on this by Sir Ken Robinson. And he said, whether it was the Prussians or the British that had put schools in, in the 1800s and 1900s, they were trying to grow bureaucrats who could work in the empire. And so it was important that everyone had a common knowledge and framework to work, right? In their legal system and in their business systems and in their commercial systems. And um, today, I think we have an opportunity to change that and to say, how can we unleash people to do their thing and to find their way, right? And to um, discover what they're good at and what problems they can go solve. Um, And then from just, you know, I would say that what has changed is, (laughs) I mean, there were so many funny not funny questions that I were asked. I was asked over the years, like when I was raising money, 
are you going to get pregnant? Like totally um, think. And you know what? I didn't do anything about it. I just took it and I left it off and I just went about my way and I tried to make the company successful today. Uh, I have a different perspective as many people do, which is I assume that some of these questions are asked out of maybe lack of context or whatever. And just ask to try to um, inform people that in the moment, right? Not sure that's a question that we should be talking about or something like that. And um, definitely in positions of leadership, I've learned, um, I used to try to sometimes meet with people afterward and say, you know, I think that comment might've been, you know, off-putting or, or worse. <laughs> and now I'm thinking, well, you never want to embarrass someone. I think, especially in tr- places of leadership, have to stop the conversation and just say, I don't think that that is constructive or what we need to cover here is X. And um, it takes more courage, but um, we didn't do it years ago. We just let it go. And we tried to patch up, uh, you know, in the hallways and sideways and whatever. And now hopefully we can all be part of the solution in doing this. And I mean, there's many HBS grads like Aileen Lee um, at Cowboy Ventures who started All Raise with many other people she, you know, she brought into that initiative to really create more opportunities. So there's lots of ways to get in, engaged more than ever. And I would say, um, you know, it, it's never been a better time to For found what? a company or to get into venture, both. Sorry, but I had to share this. But for whatever it's worth, what you just shared, you lived through saying you heard in, in investor conversations that will you get pregnant? How will things move? For whatever it's worth, we have lived this. And I, with my partner, have lived this like a couple of years, just even a couple of years back. Uh, for what you mentioned, we should speak up. We spoke up in a way that we knew from the minute then that these weren't the partners we were interested in working with because a man or a, a guy founder will never be asked that what if you start a family while while a mom becomes a mom, a father becomes a father too. And that's that's a big put off and almost sad to share that. I mean, what you lived maybe a few years ago, we lived it just a couple of years back as well. So probably the context or the thought process hasn't changed. Uh, but you're right. I think the change needs to even come from you know, founders like us to call it out saying, hey, I don't think that's a relevant question. I think um, that's a fair point. But um, yeah, I mean, not as encouraging context even now. <laughs> right. That's, but I guess, uh, yeah, so so point well taken. And I'm so sorry you had to deal with that. So, so I think as a group, let's figure out how do we be upstanders or whatever the, the um, and fi- help each other find the people who are actively trying to be more inclusive. So sorry, I'm extending this, but the way we actually think this can happen is actually having women investors across the table. You and I as investors will never ask a woman founder that, hey, what if you start a family? How will the startup move? I think we relate to it just because probably we are women. And I think that's probably one of the core reasons of why we're doing this podcast as well. I mean, there are a bunch of aspiring women wanting to you know, come into the venture ecosystem, but we also know that one of the root causes why a lot of women founders do not get funding is just because there isn't uh, you know, a similar counterpart to look across the table. There aren't women investors who women founders probably feel more comfortable with or almost more relatable to. Um, so yeah, I think one of the ways we can solve it is have more women, fa- women investors who can continue backing and, and rooting for women founders too. Yes, more women investors and also um, making sure the environment and the questions and the acceptable context is that inclusion is um, good business as well as the right thing. But I think if we if we just focus on, okay, 
um, let's not change the status quo. Let's just add new elements. I think we're missing part of the opportunity, which is that I think I'm optimistic. And again, maybe you can say I'm too optimistic. And, and I think founders are noticed, noted always and, and venture investors too, probably for um, thinking what could go right, not what could go wrong is um, how do we, yes, bring new faces, women and people of color um, to check writing positions and I, I guess um, bring everyone else along to the benefits. With you, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, and adding on to what Anvita said, you, you brought up a really important point where we're seeing a lot of institutional change and that's across industries. Um, but I think what really makes a difference is and that you as a leader are actually now, you know, raising your voice when things like this are happening. And I do think that the combination of individual you know, efforts and institutional efforts is what's really going to change. Um, I think the perception of women and people of color in their industry and hopefully um, the representation. That was definitely very interesting. So just to end that conversation before um, we go into a fun segment, what advice do you have for women looking to enter the industry? Well, it's funny because some, some tactical things. So I think VC Twitter is a thing, especially in era of lockdown, which is it is a way to get inside um, conver- or get conversations with VCs and, and good or bad. There's a lot of on, um, on there and they're also on <laughs> Clubhouse. But um, I would say it's good to be aware of that. And um I will also note, do as I say, not as I do, because I am notoriously a voyeur on social media, not that active. So I'm kind of lame, Uh, though. I will tell you that maybe this will raise my own accountability. I'm trying to be what my friends call reply person, which is I'm not posting a lot to say, but I'm trying to, you know, participate more in conversations just for fun. Um, But I do think that is a way to understand you know, get involved and get to know people. And then if you have smart comments or you want to share something, you do it, right? Because especially in these days, people are building really meaningful business connections, maybe other kinds of connections, but for this conversation, um, business connections on Twitter. And then um, the other thing I've seen, um, and there's a woman named Siobhan Zillis, who um, was uh, relatively new to venture, and she created a map of um, the AI landscape pretty early in her career. And at the time, the sector was still emerging, you know, wasn't as evolved as it is now. But by doing that really great market map, she became a go-to for founders that said, oh, I'm in the wrong category, or hey, can I be added to NLP solutions or whatever? And I thought that was really smart. And that's something that students could do, which is to build their expertise on a theme or an area, and then offer that either both or both to founders or to VCs. And um, that is, you know, and, and I think I can send a link of it. It's SiobhanZillis.com. You can see her original market map, which is great. And then the other is I would just say it isn't about, in a good way, resume or things like that. It's about earning and building a reputation among VCs and founders for actually helping out. And um, 
I do think that some people spend a bunch of time with founders, getting to know them, maybe making very meaningful introductions to VC. That's, that's possible. The other is to, you know, engage with the VCs by providing some of this landscape or, you know, interesting commentary on a sector or something like that. Um, and if your intent is to get into VC, try to build some VC relationships. Because if you just work with founders, it's like a, um, it's necessary, but it's not sufficient to necessarily get to the VCs, though, of course, um, good founders can over time introduce you to VCs. Um, and I would say, you know, the biggest thing probably that obviously people in VC want is they want to source deals, they want to inform their selections, and then they want to support companies and kind of um, figure out where you could add value to the VCs that you get to know. That's some great and also, advice. yeah, also send you an article that written by um, Sean Shu, who I really respect, um, who's at, um, who has some great tips. Amazing. We'll make sure to, sh- to share it with our listeners. Um, great. Now we're at our final segment. I just got a few questions for you. Really fun and short ones. And the first one being coffee or tea? Coffee. Yeah. Uh, is it like a morning and afternoon thing? Like I do coffee in the morning and then tea in the afternoon or is it coffee throughout the day? It's a good question. Um, I like the idea of tea, but um, I love coffee these days, just black <laughs> coffee. And I like the taste of it. Amazing. My second question, if you had to relocate somewhere, where would it be and why? I feel like the answer I have to give is Miami because it's so hip in the VC ecosystem right now. And I am thinking about spending some time there, but maybe I'll answer your question with a little bit of a non-answer, which is I believe that we go to work today in the cloud for those of us fortunate enough to work in digital. And so I am so excited for this shift, which I think is so profound and has never happened in human history before, where you can live where you want to have your life and you can work. If you're fortunate enough, again, to be in, in some of our jobs that are very digital heavy and you can work in the cloud. And um, it's a huge uh, opportunity for people. I couldn't agree more. I've heard a lot from um, people with families uh, about the flexibility that it has provided when it comes to career moves. Um, so my final question is, um, who's a person who has greatly influenced your life? And that could be personal or professional. So many, but I'm going to go with my HBS study group member who I met before business school because um, he was in the Navy and met my uncle and said, I'm leaving the Navy uh, to go to business school. And my uncle said, oh, you should meet my niece. And so we actually uh, talked a little bit and decided to be in the same study group. And that's Christopher Michael. And we started military.com today or together. He was, um, this is his idea. He was a, a veteran who, and a reservist at the time who was thinking about how would we connect that community in the digital era and still my best friend to this day and keeps me honest and um, uh, helps me, you know, be my best. And I'm just so grateful for that friendship and that professional and personal collaboration. Awesome. Yeah, you do meet some great people here at HBS. And thank you so much for being on the show and sharing so much of your experience and insights. Um, I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy this episode. Well, we're so enthusiastic for you and all of you. I mean, some days I wish I could trade places with you. It's a wonderful um, opportunity that you have both at, you know, at school, but then also um, to start your journeys. Thank you.